Good morning. Um, on behalf of Chest, I welcome you to the August 2015 edition of the podcast. My name is uh, Tim Urgu. I'm a pulmonologist at the University of Chicago with an interest in uh, pulmonary interventions and bronchoscopy education. Today, I'm actually filling in for Kyle Hogarth, who's the editor of the podcast section, but he's not available for today's session. I'm very excited about the topic we'll be discussing today. Um, we're privileged to have with us two leaders in interventional pulmonology. Dr. Armin Ernst is a professor of medicine at Tufts University in Boston. He published extensively both on novel and established uh, IP techniques, and today we'll be discussing uh, the Chest Expert Panel's report on bronchoscopy training. Armin, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Our other guest is Dr. Michael Simoff. Dr. Simoff is the director of um, Interventional Pulmonology Program at Henry Ford Hospital in Detroit, also a very accomplished interventional pulmonologist. We'll be discussing his accompanying editorial entitled, Learning to Look Through the Bronchoscope. Mike, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. All right, so I think we have about 30 minutes. I think we should just uh, dive into it and get started. I want to introduce the topic by mentioning that CHEST convened a diverse group of individuals with a cognitive and technical expertise in pulmonary procedures, teaching, and training. And this group assessed the current state of training in bronchoscopy and attempted to issue recommendations or, if you want, suggestions on how new bronchoscopy training content and guidelines should be structured as we move forward. The paper by um, uh, Dr. Nurst and colleagues with Dr. Hurst as the first author, and the editorial by Dr. Simoff bring up issues mainly related to competency-oriented training and, uh, I would say, educational philosophies as they are applicable to bronchoscopy training programs. So, Armin, uh, I want to start by asking you if you can summarize the main findings and suggestions from the consensus statement. Yeah, uh, thank you, Tim. That, uh, it'll be a pleasure to do so. Uh, first of all, I'd like to start off saying that um, uh, I really wanted to commend uh, Chest again for really tackling such an important issue and uh, pulling together such a sterling panel looking at it. Uh, I was asked to chair it, but certainly uh, really when you look at the line of authors, we were all equals, uh, everybody participated equally in putting this together, and I want to make sure uh, that that uh, credit really goes to both the participants and the chest as the convener on this. But basically, uh, as we all know, uh, bronchoscopy has really uh, taken off in the last 10 years in the field of pulmonary as well as thoracic surgery with the advent of a lot of new, novel, and latest technologies. But uh, what has really bedeviled us is figuring out how we train uh, novices and others uh, in learning those procedures. And when you really drill down to it, we have really not even achieved consensus on how we teach bronchoscopy as a basic skill our trainees. And uh, we thought this is really a good time now to really take inventory of uh, what we know, what people do, what the requirements are, and uh, see what the literature supports 
as the best approach in training fellows. And um, that is what we set out to do. Uh, we formed uh, several groups, and when you look at the line of contributors, you'll see that we have had um, involved pulmonologists who are heavily involved in education, others in interventional pulmonology, and others, again, in um, more uh, basic or advanced diagnostics. We've had thoracic surgeons on the panel, as well as pulmonologists and surgeons from outside the United States. So we really thought, let's take a broad view of the whole topic. And you can imagine when we considered what the most important questions are, and they were framed as our key questions in terms of approach to training, that we could find only a lot of diversity in approach, but really nothing that supports one approach over another. Uh, and I'm now talking about surgery versus pulmonary training, and I'm talking inside versus outside of the United States. And with that uh, finding, going through hundreds of articles, uh, we thought we really should come up with recommendations that would help uh, standardize what we do across the board. And that was really how this all came together. And taking into account that background, we came up with um, seven, eight, I stay corrected, eight recommendations. Mm -hmm. And um, you can read those, uh, but they basically say that we should move away from just purely volume-based certification processes for which we really have little evidence uh, that they assess competency to a certification system that measures skill acquisition at knowledge-based competency assessment. Mm -hmm. We also suggest that it shouldn't stop there. Once you have learned and mastered the skill, you should be required to continue skill maintenance and practice improvement afterwards. And I think, and everybody uh, agreed with that, that we also should check on that, on skill maintenance after initial skill improvement or skill um, acquisition throughout your career. Clearly, and that is suggestion number four, uh, for training, there should not just be one modality, but multiple modalities should be used, including tools uh, such as e-learning, lectures, and others. And then we move to state that countries with comparable levels of healthcare probably also should consider comparable levels of competency assessment. And that really means that our societies need to start talking to each other and synchronizing uh, really what we require of trainees. There is no reason to think that uh, European trainees are very different from North American trainees, and there is a great opportunity to synchronize. The same holds true with other societies, for example, in thoracic surgery, where skill acquisition is similar, 
level of skill is similar that is required to really provide great service to our patients, and we should have the same conversation there. Perfect. And lastly, we suggest that simulation should clearly be part of that training. And those were the eight. That's great. Thanks for um, thanks for the overviewing this. Now, you know, as we move into competency-oriented training, uh, the checklist, assessment tools that you you refer to, among other instruments, will likely become necessary for declaring competency and not just using arbitrarily chosen numbers. Still, though, as of today, recommendations from most national and international societies continue to use specific numbers for each bronchoscopic techniques. Numbers which, in my opinion, from my review of the literature, are never based on evidence, even when evidence may actually be available, like for endobronchial ultrasound or uh, basic fundamental bronchoscopy. So this may be relevant for our listeners because uh, this recommended procedure volume uh, from national societies is used by some hospitals for credentialing and recredentialing. Although now everyone seems to understand that just volume-based certification may be meaningless, and that's actually, I think, it's highlighted in your paper. So question for both of you, how do you both envision today a certification process in bronchoscopy? You want to go first, Armin, or me? No, why don't you go first? I think that, um, you know, Armin's group, um, they did a wonderful job with this paper. They really put things together and highlighted a lot of the problems that we're actually seeing. One of the first steps that's going to be immeasurably important is for, um, as Armin said, the societies themselves to um, sit down and agree to agree um, and come up with some type of standards. And again, it's going to be other than numbers. We need to create curricula um, that are going to work across the, um, across the board. And unfortunately, I think the reality of practice nowadays is that everybody can't do everything anymore. And maintaining the necessary skills in the long term is going to be immeasurably um, difficult. I know um, pulmonologists you know, consider bronchoscopy as a core thing of what they do, but with the addition of sleep and what's gone on with ICU medicine and pulmonary hypertension and all the various um, aspects, I think that learning the advanced skills necessary is becoming more and more specialized in our area. So dedicated time and energies need to be put towards that. I put in the editorial there are seven learning styles that mm -hmm. are recognized in education. And we need to, as new educators, be able to use those um, combinations in terms of creating a curriculum so we can teach everybody. We also need to find out who has deficit and who doesn't from the front end. We all have intrinsic neuropsych capabilities, and some people just aren't as naturally gifted. I'll just use that term. But if we identify those people early, we can actually put them through additional training that can, up, um, that can improve that. Not everybody can ride a race in the Tour de France but everybody can improve their skill level on a bike, become faster and more efficient. Armin? Armin? Yeah, no, I, I think uh, Mike is clearly right, and uh, Tim, you bring up an excellent point. Uh, I would say three things to this that are important. Uh, 
um, if we move from one system to another, even if the old system of just counting numbers is imperfect, we should replace it with something else that we believe serves the issue better than the old one. And part of the eye-opening experience uh, that we went through when we put this guideline together is that we all agree that there has to be a better way to assess competency. But the literature that is available to us right now does not give us a, you know, fabricated tool that we can now all employ. And that is really, you know, why we make all these recommendations aimed at uh, everybody starting to develop those. So we need them. If, if we just pull the carpet on numbers, uh, we have right now not something universally agreed upon to replace it with. So that would be number one, and I think that is something that really needs to be tackled aggressively. Right. Um, the second one is numbers will never totally go away, in my opinion, because um, we, we would at a basic level agree that one is better than none, so a number certainly makes some sense somewhere, and there is some evidence that repetition is helpful, you know, so not sure that we can totally bury it. And what we haven't tackled at all is the issue of teams in all of this and the likelihood that if you do something together more often, you'll likely also get better as a team. And it is something we need to be mindful of and certainly consider in the big scheme of things. But the last and the third one that I wanted to point out, and I'm totally in agreement with Mike on this, is that uh, in order to move from one to another, you need to have a cadre of teachers at the ready who can do that. Um, we can't just demand a different system and assume we can deliver on that on day one. And Chess certainly has taken a, a leadership role in this, but it is something that once we move, we have to universally address as well. That's, that's great. I actually want to ask uh, you, trigger, you trigger a few more questions here. So, I mean, I think we all agree that the more procedures we do, the better we get, you know. But the question is, how many do we need? One, a hundred, ten thousand, you know. You read, uh, you read books like Outliers, for instance, people mention that 10,000 hours to become an expert in other domains. That will never be feasible for physicians. So we know that the procedure volume was chosen to assess performance in the guidelines because of the absence of more suitable alternatives. Now, I think the question I have for both of you, moving forward, how do you envision our efforts? Um, how, to, do you, how would you implement um, validation of assessment tools, checklists? Would you work through societies or you just... Uh, think maybe investigators will take initiative and uh, perform these studies at their home institutions with a couple of other centers. Can we brainstorm about that for a second? I think, you know, that's a, that's a terrific start. One, we have to get input from people throughout the United States. I mean, what we do here in Detroit and what Armin was doing in 
Boston and what you're doing in Chicago isn't necessarily all the same in terms of practice, um, skill assessment, um, a capabilities in terms of just what equipment is there to be able to train with. Um, Armin mentioned simulation models, you know, do we use low fidelity and high fidelity systems? So first off, we have to kind of come across the board in terms of figuring out what do we need in terms of training. And then we have to start developing a standardized curriculum, something that makes sure that the um, tools necessary are available to all of the educators and all of the students. But more importantly, we have to put into place um, tools to actually test metrics to make sure that we're measuring those things. Because if we don't decide what we're going to measure, how are we going to know what we will, um, have as outcomes in the long term? So, Mike, let me ask you this. Based on the suggestions from uh, the just uh, expert panel consensus statement, and um, incorporating your long-term expertise as an educator, how would you design a bronchoscopy training program if you're given unlimited resources? Well, In I'll tell you. Um, I have a 56-page curriculum currently for all of my fellows in bronchoscopy. It includes all seven characteristics. They have reading assignments. They have low-fidelity model training. They have high-fidelity model training. They have um, didactic um, components in terms of web links, et cetera, that they're required to cover. They have hands-on requirements. Um, this has been developed as a sequential learning tool. Our first years have, a, has a, have an outline in a curriculum. They must pass that to move to the second year. They have to pass that to move on to the third year. For those fellows interested in advanced training, they have to reach certain points in that and complete their second year training to begin EVIS TBNA training, et cetera. Um, when we start adding fancy new skills, I think you have to know all the basic skills first. Built into that, we have for critical care fellows, bronchoscopy curriculums, um, et cetera. So I've been looking at this for the past um, five to ten years and trying to develop exactly those types of characteristics. Um, I'm not saying what I've done is the best thing, and I'm not saying what I've done is correct, but what I've tried to do is put it into paper, and then we use those as measurable skills. We have pre-tests that are done before each year and post-tests that are done in the completion of those years, so that now we can do um, a little bit me better measurable in terms of at least academic knowledge of um, bronchoscopic skills as well as having hands-on testing of those bronchoscopic skills in both low-fidelity models as well as in patient management. So what I think needs to be done is um, whoever or whatever tools we can bring to the table by an organization such as um, the college um, to bring all of those curricular together and then have a group of people, not only pulmonologists, but true educators go through that information and help us um, really create a better tool in terms of training and in terms of education, then we need to make that available to everyone. And then we need to be able to test and measure that, bringing it back to chest after several years. This isn't a one-year process. This is something that we really have to make a true commitment to change. Um, and I think that's going to be the very, very important part to it. Armin? Yeah, clearly I think uh, true. I would um, add a few points to this. Um, one is, you know, clearly 
uh, for years already um, because of Mike's commitment to quality and bronchoscopy. Trainees who have left his program have, you know, ranked amongst the best in the nation. But the 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 problem is going to be that we will have to figure out something that raises and elevates the floor for everybody, um, and that includes smaller training programs, uh, training programs with uh, more limited resources, uh, less emphasis on advanced procedures, and then also do this, you know, likely not just in the U.S., but as we had suggested in other countries as well. And this is a lift likely too big for a single institution or a single group. And I do see personally uh, a, a clear opportunity and need for professional societies to step in here, uh, really develop a consensus on what minimum requirements are, uh, maybe even become the you know testing uh, centers of choice and really help distribute some of those resources uh, necessary. High fidelity simulation is expensive and it requires uh, very well-trained teachers. You can't have that at every institution. So societies can become instrumental in helping to disseminate, disseminate knowledge and access to some of those things. Um, so in my mind, we need to really take a step back and um, reimagine who is doing what and how we make sure the necessary resources get deployed. So I, I do think uh, this is a society opportunity at this point in time. Mike, you actually state in your editorial that um, we are physicians, not trained educators. Uh, I think we all agree on this. We were not taught in medical school how to educate. And uh, you actually uh, very eloquently make the analogy to the graduate and undergrad teachers. So it seems clear that a feasible solution to this problem is likely the implementation of faculty development programs for bronchoscopy educators. Now, I know CHEST had several train-the-trainer programs pertinent to lung cancer education um, uh, with the lung cancer education program that um, occurred in Europe over the last two years. But do you think it would be valuable to have such programs for those of us teaching bronchoscopy in our fellowship programs? And are there any thoughts on this at the society level? I absolutely think that that's um, important and imperative. Again, I've said that bronchoscopy is something that pulmonologists just intrinsically believe is part of what they do. But we haven't gotten away from the see one, do one, teach one um, philosophy. The people who are now teaching uh, learned from others who learned in a similar fashion, and we really have to take a step back um, to be able to do a better job at this. Um, I'm a strong proponent of bringing in others. I, I it was participant in developing a um, one of the board exams, and I found it very interesting to sit down with the professionals who write examinations as they explain to us the process, how questions are created, what the purpose of testing is, and learned a tremendous amount about it. 
and thought that I was good at writing questions or understanding how to get that information across, and I wasn't. And so I think we need to do a similar thing and find educators out there um, that can help teach us how to become better teachers and develop better ways of approaching our students because it's just going to get lost in the mix. When we started, Armin and I started, um, back in the early 90s, pulmonology was much smaller area in terms of breadth than it really has become now. And our trainees um, with more limited hours don't have the time to spend with increased amounts of requirements for all sorts of different aspects to their training. The opportunities are actually decreasing rather than increasing to learn, have um, training and procedural skills. So yeah. I really do think we need to be able to max, uh, maximize their opportunities um, for the time that they're there so that they have the best chance to learn. Yeah, I I agree, and you know I I think the other benefit of um, train the trainer efforts or more society based efforts uh, is the hopeful effect of decreased variation in training, um, which is one of the problems that we are currently dealing with. If you do the um, uh, do one, see one, teach one, you clearly have as many different ways of doing something as you have teachers. And uh, it is detrimental to trying to identify the best way of doing one single thing. And I think uh, that is one of the potential issues that could be tackled with a new way of teaching. Mm -hmm. I agree. Mike, I um, I found your editorial very genuine, by the way. It's uh, written with a disarming honesty, I think. Um, and that made me think about the way the curriculum is designed these days, um, in general in, medic in medicine, but specifically to bronchoscopy. So we know that curriculum planners in general are questioning not only the content of medical education, what we teach, or how we teach it, but also the connection between the content and teaching through a true understanding of how learning occurs. So I want to get a little more personal here because you hinted to, uh, to this topic in your editorial by bringing to our attention the differences in the way we learn and you highlighted different learning styles. Uh, I think it's relevant for our listeners to know that uh, our preferred learning styles as educators may be completely different from our trainee styles. So now questions for both of you, and Mike, you can start. Can you comment on what you think is the preferred learning styles of our pulmonary fellows, or how do you address the different learning styles in your teaching encounter? I think that's that's an interesting question. I mean, it's hard to know what your best learning style is. We all think we know. Um, I've actually had it um, looked at for my son, for instance, and he's a very big auditory learner. If he has to read the material, it doesn't go as well for him. He doesn't retain as much, but he can sit and listen without taking notes and retain huge amounts of information. I think it's very difficult to ascertain unless we create a tool or just ask people to use the tools available to test themselves and find out what is their learning style. Because I think you hit the um, nail on the head, Tim, when you stated that how the teachers learning style can even differ from the student. 
So if we're really to make a commitment at this, we each need to find out what our learning styles are because we have a tendency to teach in a similar fashion. That's what I said when I um, broke down our curriculum here. I try to be as inclusive as possible in all of the seven learning styles. But that said, that's me, and I still don't have um, a great understanding of my own learning style. Um, so what we need to do is continue to evolve upon that, um, find what the best tools are for testing, and actually use them. Armin? Yeah, clearly, clearly true. I, I'm not sure that I know mine, but, you know, one thing that is clearly clearly true is that there's a generational difference. And one of the first things we also have to recognize is that while, you know, we go on in, in years and experience and uh, loss of hair, um, our trainees have not just different learning styles, they also have completely different channels and uh, modalities of obtaining and then processing information. And I'm not sure that we've done the best possible job, generally speaking, of adapting to that change as well. You know, we, we tend to use what we have used in the past, what worked for us and what worked 20 and 30 years ago, and have not really asked uniformly the question, you know, how we need to better serve the, the people we are entrusted to train. It's interesting you guys mentioned this. Um, you know, one of the <clears throat> learning uh, theories developed by Kolb, the experiential learning theory, states that uh, learning occurs after we perceive an experience and then we transform it into, into knowledge. So it does appear from surveys that medical students and physicians prefer uh, what is called active experimentation, where you may take a concrete experience, and that could be an event like a lecture or um, hands-on session, and uh, you transform that into knowledge by experimenting with it, playing with it. So from practical standpoint, um, it seems like the learning styles preferred by uh, physicians are through simulation and uh, problem-based learning. The reason I bring this up into the conversation is because uh, Mike has a paragraph in his editorial referring to what speakers do when they show slide after slide with graphs and tables, and I quote, each chosen to support the viewpoint of the speaker in many respects, instead of educating, we often review the facts. And it's known, actually, from CME literature that just lecture-based uh, curriculae are not efficient. The retention rate is low. Uh, about 8% if you test people several months later. So that brings into question, when we start implementing new curricula for bronchoscopy education, uh, how much emphasis should be on simulation? And uh, we already kind of talked about it. What about problem-based learning exercises? Well, Armin, you, you want know, to start? Okay. Or Mike? Yeah, <laughs> you know, I, I think it is safe to say at this point, uh, with all the experience that we have with simulation, simulation-based learning in other medical specialties or even in other professions that have a lot of hand-eye coordination requirements, um, that 
even with the limited literature available in pulmonary and thoracic surgery, uh, this ought to be a central effort in, in terms of uh, providing education to our bronchoscopy trainees. And we really made that suggestion in, uh, in, in a fairly strong manner in there. So clearly, we are supportive of this as a group. Um, Chest has been using this now for quite a few years, but we still need to tackle the issue of how we teach this the best way, how do we standardize that, how do we make sure that we have the the appropriate cadre of teachers, and how do we make it accessible to everybody. This should not be a privilege, and that is it's used right now. This should be a requirement, and that is a very different thing. Mike, um, if I taught you how to throw a baseball and um, how to catch a baseball, and we worked on it for weeks and weeks and months and months and months, you would become very good at that. But then the next day, instead of just playing catch, I throw you out onto a field and say, okay, play. Well, you won't necessarily know all the intricacies and how things work and interact. I only bring that example as we can show people how to use a bronchoscope over and over, and simulation is a wonderful tool for that, as well as a lot of standard teaching. But unless we teach all of the components that wrap around that, um, then we're going to be missing the whole picture. I mentioned things like lymphatic drainage patterns, understanding the variety of diseases and the um, components of which have airways um, problems. I say that because, yes, I do believe that didactic teaching, just um, quickly going over or just repetitively going over literature is just not the way to do it. But to, A, assign reading on a topic, B, providing didactic supporting that reading, C, having time to then discuss those issues is a way to improve repetition and thereby improve retention rather than, like I said, spitting facts out to people and sitting in front of them. Retention really is, you mentioned 8%, and that's perfect because that's pretty much how it works out. If we look at how we maintain and create long-term memories, it's really the, if you sit down to read a textbook and you spend an hour, it's only the last 10 to 15 minutes of information that you read that's going to go into long-term retention. You might remember bits and pieces of the other stuff, but none of the great details. We have to use that one um we're actually doing didactics. I can't sit there and talk to somebody for an hour because they aren't going to remember most of it. But in 15-minute increments, and again, in support of other things, we can teach a lot. So I think that goes along with the educational component and the didactic curricular um, part of the curricular component. And then we need to merge that with both the hands-on component and then, again, any type of advanced component. And um, I, I would just like to make one one added comment because Mike really is clearly correct with what he says. You know, we've been talking extensively about the trainee, and we mentioned it briefly at the beginning, the importance of a team 
the even you know the more important clearly the more advanced the procedure can't be under it really has to be emphasized appropriately and um, if we only keep talking about the education of the individual bronchoscopist, I think uh, simulation and other approaches have the benefit of, of team education as well that need to be taken into account, and it's going to be incredibly important going forward. Yeah, Brian, we, how do you see the team effort? And just to um, reemphasize that, and we need not only look at the teachers and the um, bronchoscopists, but I think that we have to continue looking at developing um, bronchoscopy assistant training. And that is paramount to us, um, really taking this as a, a project to move forward. Because if our assistants don't know how to assist the bronchoscopist, uh, that diverts from um, the whole skill and all the outcomes that could occur. Absolutely. We're only as good as our team is. We only have a few more minutes left. Um, for the two of you, are there any final thoughts or statements that we should be talking about and we have not addressed at all? Well, I would say um, this, is an, this is a great time to really revisit this. Uh, our patients expect it. Uh, we uh, are in a bind now to not just count the numbers of procedures, but uh, are also in value-based healthcare asked what the outcomes are of our procedures and the complications. So I do think the stars are aligning to really take a good hard look at uh, our training and uh, training of bronchoscopists specifically. So I, I'm very hopeful Again, potentially under the guidance of CHESS that societies will come together and other agencies that really have an interest in this and uh, will work together to improve bronchoscopy training, not just in the U.S., but anywhere else. That's great. Mike? I would go on to say that I'm incredibly excited when I was um, sent Armin's manuscript and uh, had the opportunity to read it that we actually are looking at basic bronchoscopy skills. All we ever talk about and hear about is, oh, learning EBIS-TBNA or learning electromagnetic navigation. We haven't actually had anybody until uh, the ACCP decided that this is an important topic to actually address basic bronchoscopy training. And so I think this starting point is fantastic, and the suggestions um, that were made by um, Armin and his group are the are the correct place for us to begin. Um, and that's what we have to do is we have to really look at this as beginning because this topic has been really neglected for a very, very long time, yet its importance continues to grow um, because if we don't have good, solid bases for our trainees, I mean, really, how can they move on to anything more? I think these were great discussions. I want to thank you both and um, enjoy the rest of the summer. Thank you, thank very, you very much, much for having me.